It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I try, I really try to put on a substantive and enlightening television program. But after yesterday's Media Buzz, about a quarter of the comments I got was about my hair. Oh, your hair was all messed up. Oh, your hair was wild. I'm on a friggin' rooftop. It was really windy. The windiest by far of the various Sundays that we have done this show from uh, a nearby building uh, on the roof uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, And so I, you know, do you think I didn't know it? I mean, during every commercial, I'm like trying to push it back. And look, that's life on the front lines. Uh, Also, some bozos on Twitter just have no sense of humor because uh, one of two people wrote, oh, you know, you look different, your makeup. And so I wrote back, yeah, I'm doing my own makeup these days. We all have to make sacrifices. And some clown wrote, oh, you know, what sacrifices are you making? You have a job, blah, blah, blah. You know, you can't even... Get a, do a, a bit of levity in, in the face of this crisis. And by the way, you know, I ended the show by talking about the media being awash in false choices. That it's not, you know, there seems to be the same old partisan divisions now. Well, either you are for uh, completely letting people die because you're so hell-bent on reopening the economy, or you are so insensitive to the millions of people who've been thrown out of work uh, that um, all you care about is, uh, you know, uh, making sure that nobody even catches a cold. And it's not true. What most people want and what the president wants, the Democrats want, what everybody wants is for this thing to be over. You know, we're all going a bit crazy uh, for a gradual reopening in, you know, that still respects the safety of people. Because if everybody just rushes back into work, into the stores, into the schools, obviously that flattened curve is going to be not so flat. And it's tricky. And we should have a healthy debate about it. But I just see us slipping back uh, into um, the same old left-right partisanship. Um, This item... I. I got an email about this late last week, and I said, this is such a stupid stunt. I'm not going to dignify it. I'm not even going to talk about it. But then, well, you see what happens. It involves Joe Buck. And I met Joe Buck. I interviewed him when he was here in Washington during the World Series, which was one, you may recall, by the Washington Nationals, who it looks like, with no baseball season right now, are going to be reigning world champions for some time to come. Anyway, really nice guy, a very sort of uh, a dry sense of humor. I'd always liked him as a broadcaster. Some people don't like him. It's fine. But anyway... Some porn site that I'd never heard of uh, sent out this, we are making an offer to Joe Buck that since he doesn't have anything else to do right now, if he will act as a, a, what, a commentator or a narrator for these live cam shows featuring women probably not wearing anything or much of anything, we'll pay him a million dollars. I mean, he's not going to do that. The whole thing is stupid. So what happened is if there was this reported by an outfit called Action Network, Joe Buck responded and he said, well, depending on the site, they could just be handing some of my money back to me. Uh, so I'll hold out for a better offer and try to hold on to my day job. I have to say I'm flattered. Then he gives a comment to Sp- Sports Illustrated. So he's totally playing along with this. He says, I am highly qualified as I've been practicing these calls for most of my life. But I don't want to just take that job without a proper open audition. So he tells SI, if they get Jim, Nance, and Al, Michaels, and Mike, Tarico, and all the others to do what I do to audition, I'm in. If any one of them say no, I'm out. That's all I can commit to at this time. I can say I've never been more flattered. I know my dad would be proud. His dad was also a famous sportscaster in his era. So one person on Twitter writes, well, if Joe Buck does this, his stage name would have to be Buck Naked. 
bada boom. All right. For those of you who say I'm not being serious, look, Joe Buck had fun with it. I'm having a little fun with it. I'm also pissed off because I'm reading now that because of so many people being stuck at home, there's a shortage of frozen pizza. This time, they've gone too far. Uh, on a more slightly serious note, the Tampa Bay Times, a major newspaper in Florida, reports that uh, the newspaper and the related companies have gotten a loan, $8.5 million, from the federal government's uh, bailout program, that $349 billion that ran out and now Congress uh, said to be close to a deal to provide another $350 or so uh, billion. So its loan is it's guaranteed by the SBA. It's part of the $2-plus trillion relief act. Uh, and, you know, this is kind of a, well, the program, of course, they're going to make it seem like the program is designed to help smaller businesses keep paying employees during the crisis. Well, it does seem like the Tampa Bay Times, not to mention lots of other papers, would qualify. Uh, ad revenue is down 50%, the paper says. Dozens of staffers have been furloughed. They've cut back on the print edition twice a week to twice a week. It's only uh, the rest of the time it's just a website. And so I'm thinking, look, I don't think there should be a separate federal bailout for the news industry, even though it's just absolutely being clobbered and eviscerated, uh, because that raises questions about, you know, uh, government playing favorites and, um, you, you know, if, if you're taking federal, federal loan money as a, a news corporation, um, are you going to feel the need to be a little more favorable toward that same federal government? I don't know. But at the same time, I wouldn't say that if a newspaper company like Tampa Bay's applies through the normal channels and is granted, why should they be excluded? The, 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 keeping employees on the payroll is the point of this. So fewer people lose their jobs, and I guess I wouldn't kick them off. All right, down to business, folks. Story number one. Maggie Haberman in the New York Times, and before I go into this, it has to do with the mixed messages from the president. Man, on Friday night's uh, uh, presser, or maybe it was Saturday night, the days all run together now because I'm mostly at home. Um, president absolutely went off on Maggie Haberman, who, by the way, is probably the best-sourced uh, White House beat reporter who has known Donald Trump for years because she's in New York and she knew him when he was a New York real estate guy and celebrity. And he has gone off on her a number of times. And she had a story a few days ago. I mentioned it on the podcast. Uh, she may have been one of a couple of authors on it in the Times. About Mark Meadows, former congressman, new White House chief of staff, crying a couple of times in uh, the White House and how this, it was, they weren't making fun of him. They were saying that this was frowned upon in the sort of macho culture of the Trump White House. Didn't say exactly why he had cried, but did say that these were meetings about laying off, not laying off staff, but, you know, kicking people out of their politically appointed jobs and bringing in other folks. So he went off on Maggie and said she's a third-rate reporter. You know, that's his go-to now. Just as Ron Ziegler once said that Watergate was a third-rate burglary, we got a whole lot of third-rate reporters. And he talked about how he hasn't talked to her in such a long time and people act like he knows her. And then he talked about the story. And then the irony is he confirmed the story. The president said, well, you know, yeah, Mark Meadows may have cried, but it was for a completely different reason than the New York Times said, which they didn't quite say. So anyway, all that is the setup for this. Uh, She writes today that first Trump was the wartime president. Then he talked about his total authority over the governors, total authority of the federal government. In the past few days, he has been nurturing protests. And you know this if you've been following the news against the stay-at-home orders under certain states. This has to do with the Trump tweets in which he said, 
liberate Minnesota, because there was a protest in Minnesota, liberate Michigan, where Gretchen Whitmer, the government, just happens to be, it's a coincidence, I'm sure, uh, being touted as a possible running mate for Joe Biden, and liberate Virginia, all states with Democratic government uh, governors. So, as she writes in the Times, hurtling from one position to another is consistent with Trump's approach to the presidency over the past three years. Even when external pressures and stresses appear to change the dynamics the country is facing, Mr. Trump remains unbowed, altering his approach for a day or two, only to return to nursing grievances. And I'll speak to that because more than once I've written a story saying, well, Trump gave a great State of the Union speech or Trump um, had a, a terrific news conference and he didn't beat up on the reporters. And this shows that he's growing in the job and he's uh, moving away from And of course, in a day or two, he's beaten up on people on Twitter and that's his go-to. That's his default setting. That's just the way he is. It has worked for him politically. So right now we have, you know, even though he's the leader of a country in a severe pandemic, his numbers never skyrocketed the way several of the governors did. And it went up a little bit. Now they've slept a little bit back to where they were pre-coronavirus. So uh, as Haberman says in the Times, he's road testing a new turn on a familiar theme, veering into messages aimed at appealing to Americans whose lives have been disrupted by the stay-at-home orders. NBC Wall Street Journal poll just out yesterday say 36% of voters tr- generally trust what Trump says about the coronavirus. That's a whole lot of people who don't trust what he says. And so I think this is, you know, you tend as politicians tend to revert to what worked for them. So in 2016, Trump was the insurgent. He was the outsider. The federal government sucks. Washington sucks. I'm going to get in there. I'm going to blow things up. I'm going to be a disruptor. And that was appealing. It was also appealing to certain Democrats or people who had voted for Obama in states like Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, states that Trump now needs. Um, so journalists tend to nitpick. Well, he said this last week and the other day he said this and he said he was going to cooperate with the governors. And here he is, you know, you know, some say fomenting rebellion. Well, nobody's saying there should be, uh, you know, uh, anything other than peaceful protests. The problem is... Trump is out there saying we must have social distancing, at least for to continue for the next couple of weeks. But some of these protesters, not all, but some of them I've seen the video footage. You know, they're marching right next to each other, which means that they could be at risk for getting the virus or spreading the virus. And that is one of the tricky things here. Uh, so Trump says, look, I think they're behaving, the protesters are behaving well, but, you know, it doesn't mean all protesters are. Steve Moore, uh, he was nominated, uh, you know, he's a conservative economist guy, nominated for the Fed by Trump, but withdrew his nomination, never formally nominated. And he was out there saying, look, the people who are doing the protesting, uh, for the most part, are the deplorables. They're largely Trump supporters, but not only Trump supporters. Moore got into it when he compared the protesters to modern-day Rosa Parks, what? Seriously? I think that was a horrible... You know, I'm not... I understand 22 million people out of work. I'm sure it's higher by that by now. Some people think this has gone too far. Some people think that folks like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan have gone too far, saying, you know, restricting where you can walk and when you can go out and whether you can plant seeds. Some of this does seem to be over the top. Two people close to the president telling the Times that um, the protest could be politically helpful to Trump while acknowledging there might be public health risks. And also, it's a red state, blue state thing because the, the hardest hit states, by far, New York, number one by far, New Jersey, California, Washington State, they're mostly blue states. They're states that always vote for Democratic presidential candidates. In a lot of other states, uh, more rural states, uh, more red states, 
you don't have as many coronavirus cases. Does it mean if they open up those states to business too quickly that you might not have some hotspots? But that's part of the political calculations that go into this. Look, the Democrats play politics with this too. There's simply no question about it. But I think President Trump is looking to fire up his supporters uh, because that's always worked for him in the past. That's why last week he was tw- back to tweeting about uh, crazy Nancy and crying Chuck and do-nothing Democrats and beating up on Andrew Cuomo and all of that. Which brings me to story number two. He's also back with uh, having fights with reporters. Like, he doesn't have to pick on anybody from CNN when he holds these uh, White House briefings. But last night, he went out, boy, did he go after a CNN correspondent named Jeremy Diamond. He's tangled with him before. So during uh, the press conference, before they got to Q&A, Trump read praise of himself in the Wall Street Journal, and he played two gl- clips of Andrew Cuomo offering positive comments about the federal response. And one, they selectively ended. But nevertheless, Cuomo has said, look, when Trump does something for my state, whether it's send a hospital ship or send ventilators, I'm going to praise him. And when, But then when Trump you know, said, we're going to reopen the states, uh, but they don't have the testing, uh, Cuomo was more critical and says, we need money. We need money from Washington. A lot of governors say that. So Jeremy Diamond gets to ask his question, and he starts off by saying the U.S. death toll has now exceeded 40,000 deaths. And, you know, that's just not a number to me. That is just heartbreaking and incredible. 40,000 deaths. And I know there are sometimes more deaths from the flu, but um, it's just incredible. Anyway, he Diamond says, can you explain why you come out here uh, and you're reading clips and showing clips of praise for yourself and your administration? Is this really the time for self-congratulations? That's a tough question, but not an unreasonable one. Trump says, oh, I was really praising the healthcare workers on the front lines. And Diamond says, the clip you played and what you read earlier was praising you. Uh, And uh, Trump then said, this is fake news, your fake news, um, that um, people were excoriated by people like you who don't know any better because you don't have the brains you were born with. It's not about me, Trump says. Nothing is about me, okay? Uh, You are never going to treat me fairly, many of you, and I understand that. I don't know. I got here with the worst, more unfair press treatment. Uh, in the history of the United States president. They did say Abraham Lincoln had very bad treatment too. And then Diamond was asking follow-up questions, and Trump said nobody was tougher before the deal on China than Trump, although he did praise President Xi repeatedly. And you people are so pathetic at CNN. Then he shifted into attacking Nancy Pelosi. And your ratings are so bad because you are pathetic. Your ratings are terrible. You've got to get back to real news. So does Trump's base like when he beats up on CNN? Of course. Uh, were the questions a bit provocative? Yeah, but that comes with the territory. Anyway, I just think Trump's uh, on a tear against the Democrats, some of the Democratic governors, uh, the WHO, uh, and reporters for CBS, CNN, PBS. I've given you the examples in the past. It's a deflection, sure. Uh, it also pleases his base, and that's you know what he's trying to do now. Uh, he's the unifying the country thing isn't helping him that much in the polls. The poll numbers are down, as I just read. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Let's get to story number three, though. And this is a story actually is more favorable to Trump. And Molly Hemingway mentioned this on Media Buzz yesterday, which is, remember the, the crisis over the ventilators? And the a piece by Rich Lowry, editor of National Review, begins by saying at the beginning of April... Jared Kushner actually came out for one White House briefing, and he talked about the ventilators. And he was attacked, mocked, 
pilloried and distorted. And I said that at the time. Like a lot of the liberal press just doesn't like Jared. They don't think he should be in the White House. And so he did sort of use an artful phrase when he talked about um, it's the notion of the federal stockpile. He said this in the beginning of this month. Was supposed to be, it's our stockpile. It's not supposed to be the state stockpile that they then use. So he didn't mean that it's like the, the, the Trump family stockpile. But, you know, uh, he got just absolutely eviscerated for this. But what he did mean, and this is, this is Lowry writing, the proximate cause was that uh, Andrew Cuomo at the time was saying New York was running out of ventilators. The administration had said 4,400, but then 2,000 of them were being held by the state and hadn't made their way to New York City. Uh, Cuomo said, we need 40,000 ventilators. And if you don't provide them, you tell me which, first he said 30, then he said 40. So you tell me which 26,000 people are going to die if you're only going to send 30,000. So what was that number based on? It was coming from public health officials and models. We don't want to be caught short. So it became clear, says Lowry, many, many governors didn't know how many ventilators their states had. Anyway, now it turns out that New York State didn't need 30 or 40,000 ventilators. New York State had enough. In fact, New York State now has so many that New York was able to send, I don't know if it was 500 or 1,000, somewhere in between there, to Oregon, which needs, which Cuomo had always said, well, we'll help out other states once you help us out. So all of these doomsday scenarios, and look, I understand Andrew Cuomo had to plan for a worst-case scenario. But the fact is, his numbers were wrong. And when Trump was mocked as insensitive or criticized for not caring about the states, when he said New York doesn't need that many ventilators, it turns out that Trump was right. By any measure, says Lowry, that this has been a success. Uh, Compared with where we thought we'd be less than a month ago, if the media weren't so devoted to gotcha idiocy, more people might know about it. And that's true. You didn't see any media critics going back, except a couple of conservatives, and saying, you know what, all that thing about the ventilators, well, the federal government didn't manage it that badly. Jared Kushner didn't manage it that badly. Uh, In the end, nobody, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but in the end, most hospitals in most states got the ventilators they needed, and the people like Democrat Andrew Cuomo, understandably battling for his state, who said we need tens of thousands, turned out to be wrong. That did not materialize to be the case. That the government had to protect the stockpile in this view, so that if, because if you gave 40000 to New York, then they wouldn't be available to all the other states that needed them. So it was a question of management. I just think it's worth um, pointing that out when sometimes these stories, based on comments by public officials, turn out to be wrong. Story number four. So I made a last-minute decision. We had more time uh, than I expected for media buzz because the aforementioned Andrew Cuomo didn't begin his briefing until after our show was over. So I was really struck by a clip of Bill Maher of HBO, you know, very liberal guy, can't stand Trump, generally supportive of the press. He went off on the media, and maybe it took a, a liberal comedian to do this. And so I played this clip and we talked about it on the show, and I think Maher nailed it. I don't agree with every single thing he said, but let me just read to you some of what he said. He, he talked about panic porn. He accused the media of pushing panic. And he had the, you know, this uh, catchy phrase, shall we say, panic porn. Okay, he says, last month, the Washington Post ran this headline. It feels like a war zone. With this picture, is a picture of a supermarket and people putting out food. This is not a war zone, said Mar. This is a man with a box of eggs. And I've never seen a war zone with this much bacon. Okay, that was funny. Uh, how about this one horrifying simulation reveals the dangers of jogging during the coronavirus pandemic. Look, the virus is easy to catch, he says, but if you can't avoid it jogging, you can't outrun much. And then he talked about uh, Inside Edition, 
making comparisons to the apocalypse. The apocalypse, really, says Mara, because most of us are sitting at home smoking delivery weed and binge-watching a show about a gay zookeeper. Then he criticized the New York Times. Times headline said, it's terrifying. Millions more out of work. It was a banner headline, like World War II type, across the top of the front page. What the blank is terrifying is, what's it doing in the headline, says Bill Maher. Granted, it's a quote. Somebody had said it's terrifying. But who are we quoting? Trump? Stephen King? No, they're quoting an event planner in North Hollywood. No event to the event planners of the world. It's amazing what you people can do with pine cones and silver spray paint. But why are you in my headline? How about this? Just tell me. Millions are out of work without the flashlight under the chin, and I'll decide how I feel about it. And that's right. We never used to run headlines. It's terrifying. If it was terrifying, it was evident. Final thought from Mar: We need the news to calm down and treat us like adults. Trump calls you fake news. Don't make him be right. Now, I don't think that all of the news does this. I do think there's been a lot of responsible reporting. Uh, but, you know, this really resonates. Every poll shows that 60% or more people think that we in the media have hyped the coronavirus. Look, 40,000 Americans have died, hundreds of thousands of cases. So we don't make this stuff up. But there is it's something about the 24-7 nature of it. And, um, you know, can we focus more, as Griff Jenkins said on my show, on people who are recovering, on more good news stories? Well, certainly that should be part of the overall picture. There is bad news out there. We have to cover it. It's not crazy. But I just think what Marr did through the art of ridicule um, just makes a point that, you know, many people think we in the media are part of a problem and we need to think more about whether we are part of the problem through sensationalism, through hype, through um, saturation coverage that doesn't allow for any other news but just about anything else. And um, the partisanship that I talked about earlier. All right, story number five. So last Friday's podcast, I hope you were listening, I talked about the television doctors making appearances. One of them was Dr. Oz, and one of them was Dr. Phil, and they've been appearing on Fox. What they know about coronavirus, I don't know. In any event, Dr. Oz, as of Friday, had apologized for some dumb remarks he had made, and I read that. But over the weekend... Dr. Phil also expressing regrets. I want to sort of close the loop on that. He had been on Laura Ingram's show on Fox, and he had argued that we need to reopen the country, and he cited death numbers from smoking, which obviously are terrible, and from accidents. Well, here's the walkback from Dr. Phil McGraw. He did this on a you know, live video. I want to say, I don't mean that we just need to run back out there and start pretending that nothing has, nothing has ever happened. I don't mean that at all. I've also said dozens of times that Robin and I, I guess that's his wife, uh, 100% support the CDC guidelines of quarantine and have been following them, sheltering at home, maintaining social distancing guidelines. I have said 100% I support that we shut the country down to protect what is perhaps a small percentage of those for whom the virus is most dangerous. Then he goes on. Last night I said we as a society have chosen to live with certain controllable deadly risks every day. Smoking auto crashes, swimming. And yes, I know those are not contagious, so probably bad examples. So Phil McGraw says that, yeah, it's probably bad to cite the statistics from smoking because while you can certainly kill yourself by smoking, you can't kill somebody else. I probably could have used better examples about that. And by the way, I misspoke about drowning deaths. I quoted a worldwide number, not a U.S. number. So he got that flat wrong. And then he goes on to say, listen to your state governors. 
So what happens is these guys, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, I mean, they're, they're provocative, but they're not medical doctors. They're not coronavirus experts. So they go out and say stuff, sometimes dumb stuff, and then they get whacked. And in both cases now, Dr. Oz, Dr. Phil, maybe there's others I haven't talked about, uh, I've had to walk it back, apologize, regret making the mistakes. And, you know, I think it contributes to a public frenzy over all this. And I think it contributes to the notion that, oh, you know, things aren't really so bad. There's relatively few people in our society who are susceptible to this. One thing I just want to add, because you remember that the White House was saying that, um, uh, you know, originally there was a a model that estimated 100,000 to 240,000 deaths, uh, even with mitigation. Well, that turned out to be wrong. And now we're looking, well, it's 40,000 deaths. It's obviously going to go higher because we're, we may be past the peak, but we still have a pretty serious death toll, particularly in certain parts of the country. But what a lot of people in the media and politics fail to point out is the numbers are lower because we have essentially shut down the country, because we are practicing social distancing, because we have, uh, airlines are barely flying, because we have uh, shut down stores where you can only get takeout and people aren't going to restaurants. It is working to some degree. And so you can't just say, well, look, there's so many fewer deaths now. We, the whole thing was overblown. It was never a series. No, it's not. The, the number, the death toll, shocking and horrifying and heartbreaking as it is, is lower than experts predicted be price, precisely because many, many states, there's a few states that didn't do this, but many, many states led by New York and California and Washington and New Jersey and Illinois and Maryland and Virginia essentially shut down the economy. And that's painful. And I feel for the people who've lost their jobs. And I hope those jobs come back. And I hope we can reopen soon. But that's why the numbers aren't as apocryphal, it's been a long morning already, as many had feared. And that's a good thing. That's one silver lining. Look, lots of people are still dying, but not as many as we once feared. Because many states, and ultimately the federal government, did the right thing. I hope you will stay safe. I appreciate your listening. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, Apple, iTunes, Google Play, foxnewspodcast.com. Going to go on Fox this afternoon and talk more about this. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in free-fall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.